and welcome back to the Music History Project. Today's episode is dedicated all to the people in the band instrument repair field and the folks that belong to Napert. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Elizabeth Dale. And Dan Del Fiorentino. And Mike Mullins. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. And that is a program that is over 3,000 interviews and constantly growing. If you want to check out any of our content or any of the other interviews that aren't featured, please check out our website at www.nam.org slash library. The acronym NAPERT stands for the National Association of Professional Band Instrument Repair Technicians. Yes, indeed. And it's a great group of people who are the ones who uh, put our instruments all together, keep them repaired for our schools and for musicians all around the world. So it's exciting to uh, take a few minutes uh, for the podcast today to recognize their contributions to music and music making and talk a little bit about their craft. Yeah, we wouldn't really be anywhere without the folks who belong to NetBert and the repair technicians. We really owe them a lot. And sometimes I feel like they are kind of the unsung heroes of the music products industry. Definitely. Well said. So today we're going to sing their praises. Not literally, though. Not me, at I least. mean, Dan might. I thought maybe Mike might. <laughs> <laughs> so it all started uh, with an idea that... Folks should get together and have some standards and have some training and talk with each other about the nuances of repairing musical instruments. And so a few folks did just that in 1976, uh, one of them being Bob Getson, who was also uh, the president of the Getson Musical Instrument Company in Wisconsin. So from that idea has sprung over a thousand members worldwide who uh, do just that, get together for training and talk to each other, encourage each other, and go through some of the finer points uh, of the uh, the craft of instrument repair, uh, repairing as well as restoration. It's amazing what these guys can do. Uh, we're going to hear some amazing stories uh, today about what they have done to bring life back into an instrument that's been run over by a bus, uh, things like that. So um, I thought maybe a great place to start uh, would be Bob Getson's brother. We didn't get a chance to interview Bob, but we did interview Don. And uh, Elizabeth uh, went through and helped us pick out a couple of clips from Don's interview. Tell us what we're going to hear. Yes, we're going to be hearing from Don talking about mostly about his brother, Bob, and the establishment of NAPBERT as an official organization, as well as just kind of some general history about Bob and uh, Don's relationship with him. So here we go. Now, your your brother helped um, with the establishment of NAPBERT. Uh, right? Yes, he did. Were you involved with that as well? Uh, not, not as much as he was. Uh, that's a that's a very good observation, by the way. In that, uh, brother Bob um, uh, really there was there was a group called the National Association of School Music Dealers. 
And that got started in Elkhart, Indiana, I want to say in 19... 1958 or so, and um, it was only four or five dealers, uh, and both my brother Bob and I uh, were contacted uh, to be manufacturers or supply representatives to that organization. Anyway, at one of those meetings, early on in that group, my brother Bob presented the idea that there should be a, a band instrument repair school set up in the United States somewhere because there was a need for repair technicians. And that was very true, and these particular dealers realized that. So anyway, from that start of that one speech down there, uh, that kept working its way, working its way through, and finally Napert uh, was started, and Brother Bob and his company was really a hundred percent or more backer of the organization, and now today it's pretty darn strong. Brother Bob and I were always competitive. We were both baseball players also, and we were on same team sometimes, sometimes different team, not only in grade school and high school, but afterwards. We we played baseball until we were 22 years old, I think, or something. Uh, but as far as working together at the Getson Company, uh, we... Never had a problem. Uh, everything worked out very fine. Bob then left and started Allied Music Supply, uh, and that was basically repairing of instruments. And then he also started Allied Supply Corporation, which was a supplier of supplies and tools to the band instrument repair people. Good idea, great business. Did he make those tools? Uh, he made quite a few of them, or they were jabbed out. Uh, we were fortunate, all of us in the music industry, in Elkhorn and Kenosha, in the area were some very good tool and die makers. Mm. And we had in Lake Geneva, there were two of them, and in Elkhorn, there were two or three. Wow. So the Holton Company, the Getson Company, Allied, and DEG, and LeBlanc were very good customers of all of these. So, you know, it's that old story of um, when you make automobiles, somebody's got to make the seats and the horns and everything else, so suppliers are needed in the area. So so a lot of those tool work were jobbed out. But then uh, after I got started uh, in business a couple of years, Bob and I were talking and I said, Bob, there's a 
there was a need for bugles and marching brass. Uh, so we very slowly, dis we went in, Bob doing the manufacturing for me. So we ended up doing uh, that for quite a few years. And then I started also working with a company outside of the States. Okay, so that was Don Getson talking a little bit about his brother Bob and the origins of Napbert. And we're going to continue um, on these same uh, lines talking about Bob and the, the beginning of the organization from our good friend Scott Mandeville up in the Sacramento, California area. Fantastic guy who has helped us greatly for the NAM Oral History Program over the years. So I'm delighted to have a little segment from his interview. Bob Getson, of course, has a huge role in in that part of the industry doesn't he huge role yeah yeah and um you know the work that he had done to further the musical instrument repair uh has been uh huge in the in our in that particular corner of the industry um his work is well well regarded well among them is napper which you had brought up earlier mm -hmm. yeah helping start that right tell yeah. me a little bit about that organization uh, NAPBERT, the National Association of Professional Band Instrument Repair Technicians, um, started uh, actually with um, a small handful of uh, guys, Bob Getson and a handful of people around that area, uh, to develop an association, an educational association. And that's what NAPBERT is today, is uh, an educational association. Great programs. Yeah, you know, I'm a member, actually. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and my assistant likes to tease me that I really don't know that much about repair, but I love reading the newsletter that I get as a member. So. Oh, yeah, yeah, the Technicom, <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so next up, we're going to hear a new voice. We're going to hear from Bill Matthews, who's the executive director of NAPBERT, and he's going to be talking about NAPBERT coming to Red Wing from Allied... Am I pronouncing that? Yeah, correctly? yeah, they're yeah, they're both uh, repair schools. Okay, gotcha. And uh, the early history of Napbert. So here is Bill. My understanding of the history is that um, Allied, the Allied School, was having uh, regular repair summer sessions, and a gentleman that's here, Russ Thomas, tells a story about um, um, his family vacations being here in, or in in Elkhorn. And and um, and going to these courses, and at some point, a conversation come up of uh, they 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 decided to have these ed summer education courses and invite the graduates back to participate and have little clinics and stuff. And some of the folks that were participants in that program before Napper existed are here today, here this weekend. And um, I think the idea came up um, from, and obviously I wasn't there, but uh, ideas from Bob Getson and Ed Strage and um, some other folks that said, you know, we should start a group. We should start a group, maybe an association. And they passed the hat and collected some money so they could um, put together a mailing list and and do that sort of thing, and uh, a gentleman agreed. You know, so now they collected all this money, now what do we do? 
Um, so um, one person agreed to take that money and, and open a bank account and um, put together a mailing list and, and kind of serve as a secretary of sorts. And they lived here normal and it grew from there. Who was that? Uh, Chuck Hagler. Oh, okay. Yep. And he, uh, he brought that here and uh, only, well, back in 1999, um, it was Don Mazingo was very much involved in the getting uh, the idea of Nappert should have its own facility. Um, prior to that, everything happened out of Chuck's home and that Nappert needed its own private, uh, its own um, training center and office. And so Don was very instrumental in um, making large donation to get that ball rolling and the membership kicked in. A lot of legwork was done by many people, uh, Carl Thacker uh, here in town, um, uh, Tony Hawks over in Ohio, uh, two names come to mind that did a lot of legwork. Got um, money raised amongst the membership, pledges, and we built the facility um, that we now call home and I refer to as the world headquarters of, of Napper. And, um, that, and so that's kind of why we're permanently here. And, and uh, when I agreed to take this uh, position with Napper, one of the requirements was that I live here in the area so that I could work out of the home office. And of course, growing up here, that was not a problem for me. And so I made the move and, and uh, that's kind of the short story of why Nappert is located in normal Illinois. Um, was there an executive uh, director before you? Yeah, Chuck, in, oh, um, at some point in the early days they decided to um, have a full-time employee and mm. that, and Chuck had been doing kind of the organizational part of that up to that point and so Chuck ended up being the executive director the first, um, and at that time, you know, of course, the only paid position in the organization. And then he resigned and we had the job opening and, and we created a job description and there were a couple applications and, and uh, they fortunately chose me. <laughs> and what year me. was that? Oh, 2003. Okay. Yeah, I wow. Yeah. So that was Bill Matthews, and once again, we're going to hear from a new voice, and this is Julie Jurgensen, which I'm sure Dan has some fun facts for Well, us. she's really a fantastic repair person, and um, I was really delighted to spend some time with her and some others when I went to their national convention in Normal, Illinois, which is also where the uh, technical training center is uh, for Nappert. And it's a, just a great group of people. They really care very deeply about their craft. And one of the things that I really love is uh, something we're going to be talking about a little bit later on, but Julie totally reminds me of it, and that is the creation of their own tools, their own processes, and how happy they are to share that information with other people. And I think that's exactly the reason that this organization has strived uh, to grow and develop over the years. One of the things that I thought might be interesting to gain your thoughts on is uh, the Napper organization. I know you've been involved. I wonder mm -hmm. what you see um, the benefits of being a member. Oh, very much so. Um, 
I always make an effort to at least attend the annual conference, if not a couple of regional seminars. Um, just the, uh, the knowledge gained for just chatting in the hallway with technicians or just, you know, um, going to all the clinics, you, you know, you might learn, you might not learn 10 things in each clinic, you might learn one or two things, but I've always found that those, those few tidbits I get every year pays for the, pays for this week with no problem. And uh, just the networking is extremely important. And I think our organization is very unique that we, we're very sharing. Um, we don't really have, keep a lot of trade secrets, if you will. Um, everybody's willing to share and even closest competitors are been known to, to share vital information, which is fine. That's great. Yeah, I think so that's really it's, important. And I think the organization, um, yeah, it's just, it's just a unique situation with the organization. It's just, I can't explain why it's so open, but it's, it's definitely uh, fantastic to be a part of it. So that was Julie, and it's always nice to get a unique perspective. Um, in this case, Julie's a female working in a probably what one would assume is a very heavily male-dominated field of band instrument repair. So it's a little refreshing perspective to have a unique um, viewpoint on it all. So good job, Julie, and you know all the other women out there doing band repair, instrument repair. So next we're going to hear from our second to last new voice, Whew. and that's mm -hmm. from Wayne Tanabe. And he's going to be talking about NAPERT as well, the history and the goals and all that is NAPERT. NAPERT is pretty much an organization for repair technicians. And what somebody gets out of NAPERT, I think NAPERT is a lot like it's a library. And when you walk into the library, it depends what you're going to do in the library and what, where you look and what resources. So depending on what you do, so it, it's open doors that it gives you the ability to go directly to either the people and I think the biggest advantage of NAPERT is the ability to network with people because when you come to one of these events you realize you know maybe this person is really great at doing flute work this person is really great at doing this one operation on a saxophone so if you take the time to network with these people you can't do that anywhere else or find a resource where you can just pick this information up and I think it's very, it's great when you can talk to somebody one-on-one -on -one and really kind of get to the chase of what you want to know. And this is, lucky enough, this group is very open. They're willing to share with you and tell you exactly how they do it. People don't usually hold their cards very close to the vest, so it's, it's opportunities. So if you are smart, you take advantage of these opportunities that are just right here. And myself, I don't think in my career and where I'm at now, if it wasn't for this organization providing me with these doors to be open, I wouldn't be here doing what I'm doing. And I really truly believe that. Um, I think I've been lucky enough to meet great people here and people that got me thinking about new things and outside the box and thinking about kind of the future of things. And I believe in it so much after I, I've been in this business quite a long time and now I feel like I'm at the point where 
I need to give something back because I think I've benefited greatly from being a member of this organization. So, you know, it's kind of like what I, as I started saying, this is a library. It's up to every one of us to go in, spend good time, and spend your time wisely there. So, you know, not everybody, not all of us get the same thing when we go, go back out the door. So, depends, you know, if you're smart enough, you take advantage of that situation. So, that's how I kind of look at it in a nutshell. Well, it's really great to hear Wayne. What a passionate guy he is, and he's got quite a following. You know, it's really neat to go to one of these conferences, and he's kind of like a rock star. People want to ask him questions and say, hey, I have this unique problem. What do you think? And I think that's really one of the, uh, the major parts of that gathering, as far as I'm concerned, is the knowledge that's shared, the passion that's there. Uh, you know, there's no secrets. People really want to help each other out. They really want to find the best way to um, to repair these instruments. Most of their work is for school programs to get these instruments back in the hands of children to have it uh, work for them and play easy so that they can have a enjoyable and a uh, positive experience making music. And I'm sure Mike has uh, experienced this over the years working in the music store growing up the importance of having an instrument that's playable is really critical in the formation of someone's interest in playing music, wouldn't you say? Oh, definitely, yeah. Especially if it's an instrument that you've played your whole playing career mm. and then something happens to it. It's almost like losing a friend. It's very uh, sad and scary. And so when you bring it in to some of these repair guys, you're just kind of, I don't know, it's... A, I don't want to compare it to bringing like a loved one to the hospital, but it's it's kind of <laughs> similar if it's you're your that baby. Yeah, you if you're that close, your baby. yeah, especially if you're really close with your instrument. So, yeah, these guys are doing amazing work and helping all of us musicians uh, stay with our is instruments. So, in this uh, last segment for the uh, the history of Napper, we are going to talk uh, or play a little bit more from Bill Matthews. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. We're going to be hearing from Bill. His sentiments kind of just wrap up this segment uh, where he's going to be talking about the goals and key elements of NAPERT, what makes them so successful. The purpose and goals of NAPERT is to um, offer continuing education in the trade. It's that simple. And we do that in uh, several ways. We, uh, we do that uh, number one, we've done it ever since the beginning with um, with the educational clinics, as well as a newsletter, a trade journal. Um, and our trade journal is written by our members. The technical articles are put, are submitted by members, and um, and non-members as well, um, but primarily by members. And and it's. Um, in addition to the trade journal, we have our regional clinics, and we uh, those happen all over the country. Uh, we find a host repair shop primarily, uh, and they choose some clinicians, and and we work with them to put together. A, most of them are one-day events, and some of them are. Uh, we've expanded a couple of them are two-day events, mm -hmm. and then uh, and we're active with the repair schools, and they offer regional clinics as well. Uh, through us, and we work together with the repair schools quite closely. In fact, all the repair 
facilities currently open in the United States or actually in North America are represented here. Um, uh, the, so here today or this weekend at our conference. So we're real pleased to have that relationship with them. And then the next um, way that we offer education is through our website, um, napert.org, and uh, we have um, uh, training videos and we have articles and we send out an electronic newsletter as needed. And, uh, and then the big event every year is our annual conference. Uh, we hold generally every April and it travels around the country. Um, this is the first time we've been able to hold it here in our hometown um, in this wonderful facility of the Marriott, Bloomington Normal Marriott and Convention Center, which is um, just three years old. Mm. And uh, we were one of the first conferences they booked. Um, uh, having, being a citizen of our community, um, keeping an eye on what's going on and was very much aware of this property and uh, so I was involved in it from the very, very beginning. And so we're very pleased with the outcome of the facility and our members seem to be very pleased with it as well. So we're ha happy to host here. Mm -hmm. But we do move our conference around. Last April we were in Reno, Nevada. Um, next April we'll be in uh, Portsmouth, Virginia. And in April of 2014 we'll be in Portland, Oregon. Hmm. So we move it around. <laughs> so Bill, what do you think are some of the key elements of NAPBIRD? As far as its or the organization, as far as its development over the time? Well, I believe um, our, our main goal uh, and is to continue education. And that's, I try to put the, the filter of continuing education on everything that comes up. How does this serve the membership? Um, and how does it allow our the growth of the individual technicians? And so the key element to me is education. And as I look back in my personal history, that was the last thing that I would have ever considered myself doing would be involved in education because again I was done with education when I got out of high school. At least that's what I thought. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, creating educational opportunities for our members has uh, become my passion uh, within the organization and it's one of the most um, enjoyable parts and also sometimes the challenging parts um, to, to put all the pieces together to make the education sessions happen. Um, but ultimately, when you join the organization, that's why. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I like to point out to folks that have never been, um, especially when I talk to music store owners and managers about considering sending their texts, um, is when when we have a clinic session going on and the exhibit hall's open, um, generally the only thing you hear in the exhibit hall are crickets. <laughs> so, so we limit, we actually limit that overlap quite a bit so that um, everybody gets uh, the opportunity to be in the clinics. And we offer 
Uh, and here we offer five clinics at a time. And so there's always something for everyone. Um, the other uh, key element, another key element would be network. And the network um, is, uh, is, is vital. Um, and of course with the use of technology, uh, we're able to expand that network faster and faster. And I guess part of that, a big part of that network um, has ultimately become myself um, because I've developed um, a relationship with a lot of technicians over the years and a lot of industry, uh, people with experience in their industry that if someone contacts me via email or, or a phone or um, however, uh, I can generally come up with a list of five or six people that can help them with their question. If I don't know it, or if I do have an answer, but then give them some other folks to contact. And I don't believe I've ever received a call that said, well, I tried to call those people and none of them will help me. Um, we're, we're very passionate about our trade and ultimately the goal of each individual technician is to make sure that the musician is able to do what they do. Um, and they can't do that with a broken instrument. And so people are very open to share their knowledge um, with their fellow technician and um, get the best results possible. And in some cases, what may work for someone in this place may not work for someone in another place. Um, I've had that experience um, with things that people don't even think about. I worked with a school system that happened to have a high calcium content in their public water system, mm -hmm. which caused a problem with their instruments. But the town 30 miles away, there was no problem whatsoever. And that was a unique problem that we had to overcome. And so um, there are all these little variables that most people don't even know exist. Um, that the repair technician has to overcome. And so that network is very, very important. And it, and it, grows, it grows daily. We have, uh, in addition to our website, we have a Facebook page and, and we have lots of folks on Facebook page that, have, um, that are all over the world uh, and, and they um, are just sitting there asking questions and answering and, and it's, we're glad to be part of that, you know, that hub for that information to go uh, out from. And we do have members, we have members in 33 countries. Mm. So it's uh, pretty exciting to have that outreach as well. In fact, we're, have, we're offering our very first, um, we're calling it a regional, regional conference. It's, it's, in a, it's a regional event, however, it's bigger than a clinic. And it's gonna be in uh, Australia uh, next month. Wow. So um, I think we have between 50 and 80 people registered for that so far. And it's the first time we've never, never done anything like that. And um, so we're uh, real excited about that event. And Australia is pretty cool. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> it's a nice destination. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Except it takes 30 hours to get yeah, there. Yeah, it takes a while to get there. <laughs> but once you get there, it's, it's awesome. And, and uh, 
and then you have to come home and yeah. once, you know once you get over the jet lag it's you know you had a great experience that's so right. That's right. <laughs> yeah very interesting now do you uh, are you still repairing I repair on occasion I um, um, when I went to work for Yamaha uh, primarily I was on uh, on the phone and on the computer and so um, I I like to joke that I repaired on the phone um, of course my family's always been a support of mine supportive of my career choice and and they but they're still confused they they still struggle with to explain people well so what's your son do well <laughs> but I did get a phone call from my dad several years ago. Um, he was on a mission trip and he said, I know this guy and, and he has a question for you and he handed him the phone. And, I, and he said, yeah, well, I'm, I got this old harmonica. And we talked for probably 20 minutes. And my dad got back on the phone and he said, so, so did you help him? I said, I can tell you this. That's the very first harmonica I've ever repaired over the phone. <laughs> so um, repair-wise, I still dabble in repair as far as taking care of my family's instruments. Yeah. And um, my oldest son, my youngest son's just going to go into band next year, but my oldest son has uh, started playing cello when he was three and is currently playing uh, cello a trombone and tuba wow. and um, he's uh, going um, he's in the honor band in junior high and they're going to contest in a couple weeks so I'm excited to actually go on that trip with them and and bring my screwdrivers <laughs> so <laughs> so yeah we're excited about that and then um, uh, so I, that's that's the extent of my repair um, I do a lot on the phone I do a lot of referrals <laughs> And I do, uh, uh, I do dabble a little, little bit, but uh, there's no, no worry to my local uh, Napert members. I'm not competitive. <laughs> yeah, it's not a, I, my speed's quite low, so, and they know that, and we're all good with it. <laughs> awesome. That was Bill Matthews, and what I really was looking forward to as part of this podcast is the segment coming up now and that is something that's always intrigued me about the folks that that are members of Napert and uh, uh, instrument technicians in general and that is their ability to find the solution to a problem no matter what it takes if there's a horn in front of them that doesn't play and there's a unique issue with it they're going to figure out a way to make that work and oftentimes the results of that is creating their own tools or modifying a tool and uh, this is really fun um, if you ever have the chance to go into a music store and they have a uh, instrument repair area go back and talk to those guys ask them what's unique about what they do and maybe they'll share with you some of their tools to me that's a really a fascinating uh, example of the passion and drive that folks have to do the very best they can to get these instruments back working again so uh, hats off to uh, Elizabeth for coming up with this next segment we're going to hear from several people talking about this exact topic who's first 
Looks like first we're going to hear from Julie Jurgensen again, um, and she's just going to be talking about uh, the tooling changes and advancements throughout the years. I was going to ask you also about um, the tooling and, and your perspective on how that's developed and changed. Um, there's been some pretty cool developments um, with the magnahelic machine, you know, checking for air leaks, that, and I think the magnetic dent ball system, those two are like the biggest revelations since I've been in the, in the craft. But the neat thing is um, I was talking to somebody one day that works with computers all the time. I said, do you know what? I don't rely on a computer for my craft. And that is kind of cool, I really think, you know. It is really a craft, you know. And uh, not that I don't use a computer for things like for my bookkeeping and all that, and computers are wonderful, but it's pretty cool how in some aspects our, our craft just stayed the same. There's a lot of, you know, feel and touch and hands-on and um, things when you do a repair that you just, you uh, develop a feel for it. So, but yeah, it's, Nice not to have to rely on a computer to to do your job. Yeah, you might be one of the last holdouts too. So I think I, that's neat. Yeah, maybe welding or I don't know. Maybe their their welding machines are computerized. I don't know. You know, but <laughs> yeah, there's not too many things left in this in this world that don't rely on a computer, I believe. That was Julie, and now we're going to shift over to Scott Mandeville, and he's going to be talking about the same topic. One of the things that seems to be um, pretty clear on just about everybody is talking about the mechanics is creating their own methods of doing something and a lot of times creating their own tools Absolutely. You know, this is the best way to do it let me figure out a tool to help me with that and that fascinates me because you know it's it's an innovative thing that happens daily right yeah yeah you know there there's there are not any jobs that are identical Everything has something different to it. You know, the principles are still the same, but there are times along the way that the current tools that are available eh, just aren't exactly what you need. Uh, so you modify something or create something new or, or different, and that's the that's the fun part of the job is you, the creativity that goes along with the repairs. You know, how do I make or modify these tools so that they do exactly what I want instead of pretty close to what I want. And uh, of course, Bill is a great tool builder. I, I always enjoy watching him build and create tools. Um, but you know, I, I would say a third of the tools on my bench are, are hand finished, mm. whether they're created from the beginning or whether they take something existing and modify it. Um, and there are some tool suppliers that look at, uh, you know, you take your, your tools and you say, man, this is what I want and this is what I need. Would you build it so that other people have access? Because, again, the physics works the same. If it works great on my bench, it's going to work great on somebody else's bench. And there's the tool suppliers and manufacturers will listen. And, and um, I have a number of tools that have been designed and then produced by the manufacturers. So they, they, they do listen and, and produce those tools for us. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. Um... Can you tell me about some of them? 
other particular uh, plier types, you know, you know, I have a drawer full of pliers, every fit and finish and shape and purpose and, you know, some of them are leverage tools, some of them are actually pliers. <laughs> um, but there's a particular, you know, set of pliers that we used to be able to occasionally get that uh, needed more consistent. So me and uh, uh, Ed Krauss from Krauss Products, Krauss Music Products, uh, uh, came up with a design of this and this is what we want and this is how we want it to be consistently. And so now he produces those pliers as a, as a regular stock item and they go into well, you know, most of the benches when they understand the, the reasoning behind the, the design. They buy them and love them. Hmm. Yeah, that must be satisfying. No, oh, it's it's yeah, it's fun to fun to watch and see people use proper tools. Yeah, that means you're super nerd, right? If you can create a yeah. tool for somebody else, that <laughs> yeah. is totally cool. <laughs> uh, it gets pretty wacky in, in the shop sometimes. <laughs> So continuing on with the tools that are used by band instrument repair technicians, uh, back to uh, Wayne Tanabe, who will be talking about the uh, techniques used for um, ultrasonic cleaning. Can you explain to me how the ultrasonic uh, cleaning works? Ultrasonic basically is our standard, to understand that, our standard way of cleaning is using basically, it's a bath of water filled with some type of acid and the acid really attacks so, well, acids attack actually the metal, and what we're trying to do is remove organic matter and things that attach themselves because when you play an instrument, obviously, there's things, spits, saliva, and things go into the instrument and stay there, and they build up different things, calcium deposits and things like that. And our traditional way was to use some type of acid. The generation before that, where I started, that generation actually was using things like a drum of cyanide to do this. It was very good at doing this. So then these guys said, no, you know, that's not so good. Let's just use regular chemicals. So strong acids, but not something as dangerous, as poisonous as, as that. And then comes ultrasonic. Ultrasonics basically work with sound waves going through the water, 40,000 kilohertz a second. So the sound waves actually set the water into vibration. There is a small amount of chemical in the water so if I have a gallon of water, there's only two ounces, maybe, of this chemical in there. And it was so, such a little bit amount, and so, uh, I'll describe it as safe, that once I was done with this, I could actually just dump this down the drain. There was not, I was not releasing harsh chemicals. Um, you know, and to give you something to compare it to, you know, in, in, in anybody's house, if you have something like toilet bowl cleaner, that's probably about 80 times more toxic, than, and that goes right down to the sewer system. What we were doing with the ultrasonic and the solution there was really nothing even close compared to that. Wow. But it's interesting that to, we were cleaning musical instruments using sound waves being put through water. So I was using sound to clean musical instruments. So um, with this company that I first started with, they made me a custom ultrasonic with a lot of special features never kind of put into because of this field we needed certain things done and so they even helped create certain cleaning chemicals and it's very specific to what we do so um the biggest thing for a lot of shops you know i a lot of shops in in the u.s they're 
biggest job is the student rental fleet. And these, these are shops that just have to produce a lot of instrument in the shortest amount of time possible. And you know, it was very different from what I was doing. I was working with more the, the working musician and one-on-one. -on -one. Um, but what, it, what I didn't realize that this created a great situation for them that they could actually, what took 15, 20 minutes to soak an instrument, they could now do in two minutes. So it cut shop time down and shops were more profitable. The only uh, disadvantage is the big expense on the front end of this whole thing. Mm. But ultrasonic cleaning has changed a lot how we actually do this process and we're ending up leaving the environment in a lot better shape because we've kind of gone this direction. So I credit this, this our field for kind of recognizing, you know, maybe we should look at other things instead of the old standard way. Mm. Very so, interesting. Yeah. so it's been interesting being part of that. And what's the name of the company that you're working with? That's Ultrasonic Power Corp in Freeport, Illinois. And what other sort of things did they use it, the cleaning for for other products? Uh, ultrasonic cleaning is used in a lot of different fields for cleaning surgical instruments. It's used for that. There are companies, if someone were to have a fire in their house, there are companies that handle smoke damage. You can actually, they have certain kind of uh, solutions and chemicals. If you had like your computer in a room and it was totally filled with smoke, they can dip like your keyboard, your monitor, your stereo into this ultrasonic solution, clean it, take it out, solution evaporates, and all that smoke and the oils and things that come from smoke, they can get rid of all of that without harming the electronics. No kidding. Yeah. Wow. So there's a lot of different applications where they use ultrasonics. And then on the other end of the scale, I mean, they have these ultrasonics that are 12 feet long, and there are guys who have companies, they'll go into these big office complex, and their big business is to clean the Venetian blinds. They can take them down, dip into the ultrasonic that's 12 feet long, so get, and take them out, dry them, put them back in, because those things are impossible to clean by hand. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of interesting things that they use that for, but even auto industry, um, they make ultrasonics for cleaning golf clubs. So, you know, it, it covers a wide variety of different uses and, and things. But, you know, until uh, I think I got involved, you know, nobody really kind of looked at the band instrument business as like, well, here's another place we could like really, you know, gather some more clients. And now they're a big part of this, this industry. That's right. Well, just to put it in perspective, about what year was it that you started getting involved with that? Yeah, 1993. Oh, wow. So it's been quite a while. I've been doing it for quite a long time. Well, it's such a standard now, you know, I mean, yeah. people coming into it would just assume it's always been that way. It's so standard. Now it's, kind of it's, now, it's a big jump from knowing that some guys used to use cyanide. And there's actually a few shops out in the U.S. that are actually still doing it the 1940s, 50s way. So, you know. <laughs> now, tell me about the cryogenics part. Cryogenics. You know, it's that's a... It's an interesting thing because if one does research cryogenics on the internet, you should be able to research anything. But if you look for a specific, this specific topic as related to the metals that we have in our business, brass, copper, nickel, silver, gold, you can't really find any 
papers, studies, dissertations. There's really nothing that exists because nobody's ever bothered to actually do something. So, you know, when it comes to finding justification or proof or people need to see something in writing, you can't really find it except for there are two studies. And I remember one of them, it was the effects on what was called torsal oscillators. If you ask me what that means, I have no idea. But I know it involved wires of silver wire, copper wire, nickel wire, <laughs> and all this stuff, but non, what's called non-ferrous metals are things that are not steel. Mm -hmm. But if you look for what happens when you cryogenically freeze steel, there is so much stuff out there that it's unbelievable. But the reason I got into this is, again, I'm not the first guy to do this. But I knew of a shop doing it, but they would use an outside vendor. So I started researching this, and I started talking to companies. And then I actually made the decision, or leap of faith, to actually buy one. But a difficult situation to go into a bank and say, I need to borrow this much money, and they ask you, what do you use this for? And you explain to them, you're going to freeze musical instruments. And usually they're pretty puzzled by this. And the second thing is, if you default, what do we do with this machine? So there's, and finally one guy just looked at me and just banker said, that's really interesting. Let's do this. So, you know, it, it took a little while to find the right person that actually kind of believed. And so at that time, this is a very controversial thing. You know, guys on the, with every musical instrument, there's a music group or a bulletin board about, you know, clarinet players, trumpet players, this. And you would have guys argue about, this is not right. This is the greatest thing that ever existed. And I started doing the cryogenic freezing. And because I actually had a pool of a lot of professional players, um, in order to kind of get this established, I'd have a player come in. I said, you know, I know you have your main horn and you have your backup. Let me have your backup horn. We can do this. There won't be any harm to it. And usually, uh, actually always, do their backup instrument, their main instrument would come in right after that. All cryogenic freezing is, you know, we can talk about science and stuff, but the basic thing is what cryogenic freezing does Anytime you make anything in a musical instrument, the parts are forced into their final shapes. And when you draw tubing, you stamp a brace. Uh, even when you solder something together, when the solder cools, the solder actually pulls a little bit more onto itself. It sh the solder shrinks, so there's a little tension. So there's tension in the instrument. When you spin a bell, you know, and you force it into that flare shape, and then you bend the end over, you put a wire in, you solder that, there's tension in that instrument. There is something about instruments naturally losing that stress in the metal. And usually, this is my opinion, that after about 40 to 45 years, many of these instruments start to begin to reduce, that stress is reduced just through natural aging. And all of a sudden, those instruments start to have this added resonance, and they're a little bit easier for the musician to manipulate the sound. So that's why I think you have these iconic instruments like the Selmer Mark VI, you know, alto tenor. There's something magical about that. You know, why can't we make an instrument that has this kind of character to it right now? And there's tons, you know, any instrument, there's always, every one of these different instruments has this iconic instrument. 
and there's something about very old New York box and things like that. And so cryogenic freezing, what it did is reduce the stress in a brand new instrument in a lot of ways. I don't, it's, I don't think it's fair to say it recreates this aging process, but it's, it's, that's what it's similar to. So what a player gets, he doesn't get an instrument that plays totally different. He gets the instrument he knows, but that instrument can produce more overtones, more color, and there's a lot more harmonics available because the stress that's in the metal dampens some of the resonance, dampens some of those harmonics that are already present in the horn, but because of stress, it reduces that, so it's not as free to do it. Um, we always had, when I was doing this, that if you didn't like it, you did not have to pay me. I've never had to pay, you know, refund anybody anything on this. So I've done freezing for guys in a lot of major symphonies, a lot of uh, big name artists, and a lot of these guys really, uh, it's not like a doctor where you don't talk about your patients, but they're guys that's like, well, you don't talk about this, because I really don't want to know, like everybody know I did this, so. But I've done quite a bit of freezing for a lot of pretty prominent players. So, so I've been lucky because that's doing this has brought in these kind of players in, into my shop. Now how long is the process? How long is the instrument frozen? The process is, uh, I'll describe the process a tiny bit. The process is actually, there is a tank of liquid nitrogen. And in this tank there's about 45 gallons of liquid nitrogen. Naturally, liquid nitrogen is below 300, negative 300 degrees, is below that. And basically, how they get liquid nitrogen is basically they're taking just regular air and splitting it into a separate components, just taking the nitrogen, and there it is. So you can get a tank of this, and it's, the liquid is extremely dense, so you get this thing called a Dewar. It's basically this giant thermos that weighs over 500 pounds delivered to you, and it was hooked up to this. It was actually a medical lab freezer, and the whole thing was computer control the valve would control how much liquid nitrogen would go in and in what time sequence. So what we did was, the process for me was a little bit over 30 hours, where slowly from room temperature, it would go all the way down below 300 degrees, hold it at a certain level. And it was a different way, the temperature wasn't just straight down to 300 degrees. Little bit over time, this temperature would be brought down to the colas, we would hold it, and actually what's called ramping it back up. So it was a very controlled process of how you took it down to this cold. Overall, it's about 30 hours to do something like that. And I, not only did I do freezing for my own customers, we did freezing for a, uh, two flute companies. Uh, actually, we did some for a banjo maker. I didn't realize banjos have a brass cast frame. And so I started learning about other instruments. Uh, guys who are making oboe reeds, there's this thing called the staple. It's a little tube that the reed is built on. So I was doing staples. I was doing all these different things. And I've done some kind of wild things. So I've, I had a guy give me a couple uh, racing engines, just the block to do, golf clubs, uh, things. It's stuff I really didn't want to do. But I was always interested. And I did have one guy who was a principal player uh, in the opera in town. He brought me a Rolex watch to freeze. And I didn't really have any, I was trying to figure out why would you want me to do this? And he says, because it's eight seconds off. Eight seconds off, what do you mean? How do you even know this? 
He goes, well, I'm a pilot, and we have you know, all these gauges, and I, I know that this role was. But why do you want me to do this? <laughs> he goes, I'll just see what it does. I'm going, all right, I'm good with that, but you're going to sign this waiver that if something happens, I, I don't even know what the watch costs. I can't be responsible. So we let this, it was a self-winding Rolex. We let it wind down so there was no movement. I actually froze it. Then I see him a couple weeks later and said, did anything happen? He goes, it is four seconds better. And I said, honestly? And I said, tell me again how you actually know this. I, you know, I, I can't figure out how somebody would know this. And he was explaining that you know, with flying planes, there's a lot of accurate things based on time. And he could tell, or somehow he verified, you know, where this watch kind of stood. And so, I don't know, it doesn't make sense to me, but I'm going to accept that as verification on that. So that was the weirdest thing I've had to do. <laughs> now, in terms of instruments, what have you seen as sort of the results of this? I think when most, if a player really knows their instrument, I think what they understand is a couple things. First thing is response. You know, when I think a good instrument, when you, a player first plays the first note, either the note starts right at the beginning, meaning it's bomb, instead of blah. You know, a lot of instruments, when they don't respond very quickly, you get that little bit of delay before you get right into the character of the note. And this is the response. <laughs> My apology. Um, you get this Im better immediate response. The other thing is the sound character. They notice that their middle and lower harmonics are much more present in their sound. The best way I can describe the difference in sound, if you could take a player's sound on a particular note and take a graphic equalizer and set everything up, after the freezing, if you took all those gauge settings and move them up 5%, that's what you would have. So you don't get more brightness, you don't get more darkness, you get more of what's already there, just boosted up, just this tiny percent. Wow. But the other thing is, is when a player plays on one of these instruments, and I think one of the hardest things to do is play pianissimo, play with color, and have good response without the sound getting this kind of hiss or air or being hard to control. A lot of players find their instrument is much more responsive. And when they play soft, they can hear depth of color in their sound. So I think that's one of the most common things I can say about every instrument. It's hard to generalize something, but those are the things I can kind of, overall, I think that's what most instruments get. All right, so that was Wayne Tanabe talking about ultrasonic cleaning as well as cryogenics, which is a pretty, I don't know, futuristic, in my opinion, way to clean instruments. That's pretty cool. So next we're gonna hear from our last new voice, and that is Nick Rail. Good old Nick Rail has a uh, a series of stores and repair shops all throughout Southern California. He's a fantastic guy, uh, and I'm very proud to say a friend of mine. He has helped us tremendously here at NAM for the oral history program over the years. Nick's a really great guy and has helped us uh, not only in steering us towards some of these technicians that we've interviewed over the years, but he's also given me a whole lot of history and knowledge just talking on the phone and emails about uh, why one person's technique is different and why it's important and some of the changes that have occurred in repair um, 
in repairing musical instruments over the last 30 or 40 years. Uh, a wealth of knowledge and a really great guy. So I'm very happy that we'll have a clip from his NAM oral history interview talking about uh, creating his own tools. Oftentimes, uh, the repairmen find a way to do something on their own and maybe even create their own tools to do it. Have you seen that? A fair amount. The, uh, the, the best example of that that I can give you is because um, all of us make tools along the way. Uh, it's not a blanket statement by any means, but I think if you're not fabricating some of your tools, uh, perhaps you might be missing some of the skills that it takes to be a good repair tech because you have to think somewhat out, outside the box. The uh, different approaches to repairs, um, Different ways to do it, different different problems you encounter can require different tools. Maybe not the tool you you have, but one close to it that uh, you have to design. But one fellow who's been working for us for seven years was trained in the Cuban Cuban military in the Cuban army. So in Cuba, there are no tools and there are no parts. So you make your tools and you make your parts, hmm. and you throw nothing away if you're repadding a saxophone. The leather on the pad it goes, some, goes somewhere else, the, the worn out leather, the, the felt inside the pad goes somewhere else, so forth and so on. Uh, and, and, and you're using non-traditional materials to make the new pads. And most of your tools are things that you fabricated yourself. Mm. So I often think that I have five or six ways that I can approach a repair, but if I talk to Nelson I say, show me, show me three or four ways to do this. Almost invariably, there are ways that I've never considered doing it, but ways that when you don't have any other, other methods and any, any other uh, products to work with, you, know, you, you think of alternate ways. They're very fascinating. Mm. More than one way to skin a cat, and with Nelson, there's probably more than 10 or 12 different ways to skin a cat. All depends what you can put your hands on at any one time. <laughs> very interesting. And he's a great repair guy. Is he out of Santa Barbara also? He's out of the Redland store. Oh, okay. All right, so that rounds out our segment on tools, and we're going to shift to probably what I found the most captivating segment, um, just because it's so unique, I think, and a unique perspective on the music products industry. And that's two stories, one from Bill and then a second from Julie, talking about their favorite repairs. Well, do you have any favorite stories about a, a repair that you had to do or... or uh a situation you were involved with as far as repair? Wow. Um, I come from a long line of storytellers, as you may have guessed already. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I've, I've worked on some fairly unique instruments. Some of them were never designed to be played. Uh, I had an opportunity to work on a, a uh, violin in Vermont when I worked up there with Jeff Avakis and um, uh, my understanding in the history of the of the tinsmithing trade that one of the pieces that a tinsmith if if they ever made was uh, to kind of show off their skills would be a tin violin mm. and I was traveling one weekend sightseeing you know as as you do driving around in the fall looking at the leaves and along the rivers and I stopped at a grist mill and inside the grist mill there was a little shop and I was talking to the gentleman and 
he, uh, he's, he made dulcimers. And I was interested in that as well. And so we talked for quite a while. And he said, well, I have an instrument I'd like you to take a look at. And it was a tin violin. And he told me the history of it. And he wanted it to be made playable. Um, of course, these were decorative items. The, but the history of the instrument was that it was this famous tinsmith from the area from back in the 1800s or early 1800s, I believe. And um, it was a wedding gift to his daughter and her husband. And it was, it was all tin. I mean, it had a tin sound post soldered in place. It had a tin tail, but it didn't have strings. And so the challenge was the, the tuning pegs because as any violinist or any technician knows, the tuning pegs are, you know, you just, just touch it and it moves a lot. Well, these had um, cogs, and so from one cog to the next cog uh, would go from being loose and flat to breaking the string in half. <laughs> so it was an interesting balance. We put, uh, we did put a, um, a wood bridge on it and um, added padding to the tailpiece so they wouldn't cut the heads off the strings. <laughs> and, uh, or actually we, we had to alter some fine tuners so that we could put them on the tailpiece. And, and then we were able to tune it with the fine tuners best we could. It was a trial and error thing, but that was a lot of fun. Um, how did it sound? Tinny. Yeah. <laughs> How's that? <laughs> I'll be here all week. Thank you. <laughs> Don't forget to tip the waitress. <laughs> so, that was bad. Do you have any favorite stories of an instrument you had to repair that huh. was maybe beyond its time or oh boy. A, a nice bus meets trumpet story? Oh, I do have one. Um, it was New Year's Eve, and this fella, he's from my area. He grew up there, but... In the past few years, he'd been pay playing professionally out in Las Vegas and California, and you know he's not a big name, but he's just do nightclubs. And um, he was going to a New Year's Eve gig in southern Minnesota, and he got pulled over because his truck was so unsafe to drive. He wasn't drinking or anything, and the sheriff said, "I cannot allow you to continue with this vehicle." So. Uh, You'll have to call somebody to come pick you up. So they unloaded his truck, and the sheriff backed over his tenor sax. And it was an h cough, which is a pretty expensive tenor sax. And uh, it was in a, um, it's a hard shell case, kind of the shape of the saxophone. I don't remember the brand name. And uh, when, our, when he brought it into the store, the case was all mangled, and I said, Please tell me there's not a horn in that. And he says, yeah, it is in there. And it was, it was, I was able to resurrect it. But it was pretty, and the sheriff's department paid for it. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, yeah. How do you begin with a project like that? Get it out of the case. Very carefully. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was pretty hard to estimate it, too, you know. Uh, it uh, fortunately, 
there was no finish left on it and he preferred it that way so I didn't have to worry about being cosmetically particular you know and so I uh, I had to straighten the, the upper part of the body and part of it was crushed and I had to take posts off and keys were bent and it was just a mess. And he's still playing it. It's probably been eight years ago wow. that that happened. Yeah. That's cool. That's <laughs> and he neat. was very happy. <laughs> I would think so. Yeah. He, yeah. he needed a vehicle and he couldn't afford to buy a new sax too, you know. <laughs> So, Good boy. yeah. So that's probably my uh, worst wreck story. Yeah, that's neat. Yeah, that does sound like a, a, a instrument's near-death experience. It, yeah, yeah, I'm sure uh, Dana was pretty sick at that point. <laughs> I don't, I don't know what he did for the night. He must have borrowed a horn from, you know, that was probably his only paying gig for a week, you know, <laughs> I don't know, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> poor guy. Yeah, well, it's good that you were there to help. I think that's neat. Yeah, yeah, and sometimes I like a challenge like that, too, you know, it kind of puts a little spark in your daily activity, you know, it makes you think a little deeper than, than you've had to. Yeah, so. right. Yeah, I'm sure there's the, the top five things that you do almost all the time. Yeah, that you yeah. you know, you don't really have to think a lot about it, you know, and yep. Yeah. The the ding trumpet mouthpiece is one that comes to mind. Right? How many times as soon as you drop it it's already bent. So. Yeah, yep, yep. Exactly. <laughs> yep. So how cool is it that you get to talk to people, Dan, that have completely repaired flattened I know. instruments. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. I mean, it's one of the things that I've said is they bring instruments back to life. If it's a, just a small repair and there's a key or two that aren't working or not seating uh, correctly, um, that's one thing. But boy, if a bus runs over it, that's quite another. So uh, uh, amazing skill and, and technique and dedication. And it's really cool to uh, celebrate this part of our industry. As you said earlier, they really are unsung heroes, these technicians. So it's fun to uh, have many of them in the oral history uh, program and collection and then share them today on this podcast. I also wanted to do just a quick shout out to the folks that uh, run the office there, uh, Bill and, and the crew who put on these conferences. They have a conference every year that rotates around. Uh, they have the training center, um, technical training center, they call it, in Normal, Illinois, and um, and then nine regions throughout the world that have these uh, local training classes that are day-long sessions that uh, address very specific things and uh, really cover a lot of the important elements and developments, tools and techniques that go into this, tef uh, this uh, task. All right, so we're gonna wrap it up with our final voice and that's uh, once again, Nick Rail's gonna come back and he's gonna leave us with some closing remarks about the importance of NAPBERT. Again, that's the National Association of Professional Band Instrument Repair Technicians, as well as NASMD, the National Association of School Music Dealers. 
You guys did. Oh, the two guys in here just she gave a it. silent over her head, no, over I should, their head yeah, cheer. We, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, please write to Dan at dandy@nam.org, advocating for a slight pay raise. <laughs> <laughs> so here's Nick talking about the importance of NAPERT and NASM, NASMD. I mean, NAPERT, I wouldn't be bringing six texts to it if I didn't think, because, you know, if they're at NAPERT, obviously they're not at the bench. <clears throat> and it can be a little bit of a sacrifice to them, a sacrifice to us, a, a sacrifice to our customers because the, the techs aren't in the store, but uh, it's an excellent investment for us. The techs come back uh, uh, recharged, remotivated. They'll pick up some skills that they don't have so that we can expand what we offer, uh, improves the uh, sense of teamwork and family in, in the company. Same thing is certainly true of NASMD. Um, people from the company that aren't able to attend, part of what I'll be talking about as I make my way around the company this next month will be things that uh, we picked up at the convention here. Yeah, so very valuable, very valuable. Um, I, I think the organizations as well, not only what we learn at them and what we are able to give to other people, at the convention, because it certainly isn't and cannot be a one-way street. Um, just show up for class and learn something and go home. Uh, I think all of us benefit from the sense that we're not in, in this alone, we're in it together, we're not on it, just on an island just doing our own thing and wondering what's going on next door or a world away. Um, our challenges are the same in many cases. and. Uh, Nice to have partners in that challenge. So that's it. That's Napert. That's repair, the repair world. Thank you all for joining us. We really appreciate it. Special hats off to Michael for all of the uh, post-production of this podcast, as well as Elizabeth for all of the um, everything else, organizing <laughs> us and uh, going through all of these interviews and creating this uh, wonderful flow. I thought the uh, podcast today was a, a great flow from one subject to another and introducing a lot of different important people from the world of uh, instrument uh, technicians. So thank you all. And thanks to Dan, because without his work in getting these interviews, we wouldn't be here. Or it'd be really boring, I guess. Yeah. So it would be. you're really trying to justify that raise. Yeah, of course, <laughs> always. All right, guys, we'll see you Thank in two you. weeks. Take care, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye bye.